0: Father in heaven, as we open up the Iceberg Chronicles again, we pray that you'll send the Holy Spirit to guide us, help us to see that as we uphold creation, we're really upholding the miracle that's taken place in each one of our hearts, the new creation that's found in Jesus. We pray it in his name, amen. So we've been in this series about the Iceberg Chronicles, how the the church is like a ship, we're facing in front of us a huge iceberg, and the angel tells us, meet it, hit it as hard as you can. So you go full steam right into it. And so we've been looking at these different teachings that are undermining the church and really undermining Jesus. One of them was the idea of undermining scripture with the higher critical method. The other one was how there's attempts to assassinate the specific messenger that was sent to the Seventh-day Adventist church, Ellen White. And then we're watching this morning as we document the false teaching about origins that is creeping into many churches and universities in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Overall, though, the goal is, Satan's goal is, to undermine Jesus Christ to the point where he can put in place of the church that we know and the Jesus that we know, a false system and a false Jesus. And that's what we're going to eventually build down to right here, especially next week as we wrap this series up. We will show how, I'm going to document how that is taking place and what we can do in our daily devotions and our worship life to shield against that. Well, we know from last time that the messengers at the end of time are important. And the messengers that we're thinking of are not just our pioneers, because this is Church Heritage Month, but we're also thinking of, I'm thinking of each one of us here. Each one of us is part of this remnant in Revelation chapter 12. The dragon is wroth with the woman, goes to make war with the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They keep the commandments of God because it's been written on their hearts. It's now a part of them. It's part of who they are and what they do day by day. And so to extract that from a believer means you're extracting something that God has done and written on their hearts. That's heinous enough, but this also is what they have, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we saw that is referencing to the prophetic spirit and Revelation that that authored the whole book of Revelation, the the spiritual gifts, for instance, prophecy. It's got a whole packed meaning there in that little phrase, testimony of Jesus. And so God has called his people at the end to have the ways of Jesus written on their hearts and the message of Jesus be their focal point, even the prophetic gift itself. And that's why Revelation 4, verse 14, verse 7 says, this angel comes saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come or has come and worship him that made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. So we see the messengers not only keep the commandments, but this one here is a reference to the fourth commandment, which is linked to the fountains of waters. That phrase is found only in a couple of places in Revelation one of them is you find revelation chapter 7 where you talk talks about the lamb leading his people who follow him to the fountains of waters and the other one you find there's actually fountains of waters in babylon as well there's actually two kinds of fountains of waters in revelation i want to look at the one that is focusing me on my creator that points me back to the fourth commandment whereas you will find babylon will have its own way its own commandment its own fountain of waters though we know It's nothing but a cup of abominations. So as I look at that, I then realize, uh, yes, I am keeping the Sabbath, but I'm, in essence, staying focused on Jesus as he leads me to that beautiful river of life. And verse 12 says, here's the patience of the saints. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And so there it is again, this focus on Jesus Christ. And we know that the messengers will be opposed by false worship, which will eventually be mandated worship on the Sunday, but they're also opposed. If you can't do that, then you have to oppose them from within or dismantle their belief system, and the one area that we are up against is pantheism, and pantheism is an attempt to get our focus off of the creator, and then as messengers, we have a polluted message, not just diluted message, but a polluted message. What is pantheism? It's pretty simple, two Greek words, pan and theism, which means all God. Pas, pasapon means each, every, or all. So everything in creation is God. Mother nature, you hear these expressions, that nature formed this, or nature formed that. Somehow nature has innate power that really, as you read the Bible, is, is attributed to God. So all is God. So you, don't wanna, you, wanna, you get extreme environmentalism out of this, you also get the view of evolution out of this, and the most extreme example of this is macroevolution, which eventually nature even has the power to change the species through macroevolution. That, in essence, if you want to call it the scientific method, you can call it that, but I'm calling it pantheism. Because in essence, then nature has a power in and of itself apart from God. In essence, nature is God. Isn't that the same as pantheism then? And you also get extreme views of this in the Christian circle where eventually you have a holy flesh movement where you will find since you're perfect now in Jesus, you're God, and therefore every thought that comes into your mind, everything is now from God. And that is not true. You are not God and neither am I we can be found in Christ, but I'm disturbed by some of the videos I've seen. And I won't name the big church that starts with a B in the area that has 8,000 people going to it. But anyway, they have people just giggling uncontrollably, rolling upon the ground as a sidewalk preacher is trying to preach the simple gospel to them. They're saying nothing matters. There's no doctrine. All that matters is love. And then the person goes on and says, I'm perfect. I'm perfect. Don't you know I'm perfect, man? And they're talking to the sidewalk preacher, and the preacher's like, ma'am, you're you're going somewhere, but I don't think it's the way the Bible's talking about. I'm appalled because pantheism then has taken on new garb. You're God and I'm God. All is God. So it has various forms. The one I'm going to hit at a lot today is the macroevolution form. For instance, in the video by Nova, they, they showed it was disturbing to me. My wife uh, got after me because I was critiquing the video every few minutes as they went along. That's the way I've been trained. It just didn't make sense. There was this molten lava world, it cooled and produced a water world. So you can figure that one out. I figured maybe they were thinking of condensation somehow. The cooling effect took place with the molten lava, produced enough dew or condensation to fill the whole world with water. At least they got the water world part, right? But as they went on, it began to describe all these processes that nature went through to develop the world as we know it, the primordial soup, eventually the development of the species, eventually, as you look, the the guy was going through this whole series of how eventually mankind developed. So mankind developed from a world that had power in and of itself, that cooled, developed a water world And then out of that eventually developed different types of organisms, single-celled, eventually more complex. And he went on to say, and then eventually we get into humanoids and humans. It almost seemed like, as I was watching it, I said, okay, that's enough. And I turned it off. Because it seemed to me like earth was being described as a living, breathing organism. And I'm not saying there's not life and mechanisms within plants and animals and things like that. But it was almost like earth could be... Existing apart from God. And of course, when you take God out of the picture, that's what you're left with. And so this progresses into the ability of nature to evolve on its own. And and we're not talking about adaptations like your animals go through. You know, your animal grows a winter coat in a winter environment. In other environments, it doesn't necessarily grow the winter. We're not talking about little adaptations like that. We're talking about huge adaptations for an ability for an animal to change from a water animal to a land animal because of some kind of environmental condition. That's a huge change. And this undermines, and this is why I'm calling it pantheism, because now nature has power in itself. In essence, nature is God. And if you believe in some form of macroevolution, I would challenge you because even the scientists themselves are saying that the sequence of humankind and the geological column that has gaps in it, and those gaps take some form of educated faith to accept. You're still trusting that eventually you'll find a, something to close the gap in those theories. And some scientists have been honest enough to say that evolution is a faith. My question is, which faith do I want to believe? I don't want to believe that one. Because it undermines the Bible and Jesus Christ, and what it's called is eisegesis. Eisegesis. You know what eisegesis is? They tell us in school and seminary, we want you to do proper exegesis. In other words, this idea of this Greek word meaning from out of the text. Gather your beliefs from out of the text. That's what they trained us pastors to do. At least that's what they trained us to do up until about five or six years ago. And now people are learning that instead of extracting from the text the principles that you would apply to your life, They're saying, well, no, actually, we're going to read into the text. That's ice in the Greek, into, reading into the text. For instance, Moses didn't know what he was talking about when he described the creation of the world because we know it's six or seven billion years old, they say. And so a day with the Lord is like a thousand years or a million years or a billion years. So he really meant billions of years in the creation account. Isn't that reading into the text instead of letting the text read into you, extract from the text? And that's what we call a faulty hermeneutic. And yet, that is what's taking place in Christianity. It's been going on in most Christian circles for years. It's begun to attack the Adventist church up in the, probably the last decade. It was, had seeds before that, but now it's coming to fruition. And how does this undermine Jesus? Well, if Moses didn't know what he was talking about, and Jesus refers to Moses, then therefore Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about because Moses doesn't know what he's talking about all the right, the reasoning so since jesus validates moses as the author of the, some of the writings he refers to and he's testifying that moses what he said was true then who are we going to believe i have a binder this thick of scholarly articles in science in my origins class and one of them documents how a lot of people who are reading into scripture do not have the tools to extract from Scripture. They don't know the languages. They don't know the history of interpretation. They don't, they don't, there's, there's a philosophy that's being read into the text rather than allowing it to talk to you. And so they've documented that most of them have uh, these degrees in science or philosophy instead of degrees in theology where you're actually spending time with the text. But it also undermines Jesus. And it undermines other parts of the scripture, because I believed sola scriptura, that the Bible's my rule of faith, and 40 times from Acts to Revelation, Moses is referred to, so therefore, if Moses doesn't know what he's talking about, you have to extract each one of those 40 times. That is just in the New Testament, Acts to Revelation. That doesn't count the Gospels. You have huge portions of the Bible, then, that you would have to scalpel out and cut out if you don't believe that Moses is actually the author. And he doesn't know what he's talking about but acts seven twenty two says moses learned all the wisdom of egypt yet he refused to be the, called the son of pharaoh's daughter in hebrews chapter 11. so what does he know all the wisdom of egypt and this is really the achilles heel to saying moses doesn't know what he's talking about because we are now discovering that egypt knows more knew more about science than some of our scientists today know until they go back and investigate it we're still learning from egypt even to this day. For instance, I uh, only got in on the tail end of it, my kids were watching this this documentary on the Egyptian chariots. And one of them is called Building Pharaoh's Chariot. Do you realize how complicated Pharaoh's Chariot was? I am watching this show and, and they have to get it just right to have horses, the harness, from the harness all the way up to the chariot. Everything has to be just right for those things to be used as war machines. And so in this documentary, They're saying, in building Pharaoh's chariot, a team of archaeologists, hey, they know what they're talking about, right? Engineers, scientific, right? Woodworkers, now they're carpenters, maybe they don't know so much, but all right. And horse trainers join forces to build and test two highly accurate replicas of Egyptian royal chariots. They discover astonishingly advanced features, including spoked wheels, springs, shock absorbers, anti-roll bars, well, that's pretty advanced, isn't it? And even a con- convex-shaped rear mirror, leading one of them to compare the level of design to the engineering standards of the 1930s-era Buicks. Are you kidding me? Moses didn't know what he's talking about. When they had technology in Egypt that we, some of us in our Western European mindset, hadn't even grasped until the 1930s Buick. So go back to 1930s. Would you say that scientists and automobile makers knew something about their craft in the 1930s? You know, the scientific method was part of that whole era, industrial revolution and all of that. It's part of that. So therefore, Moses knew as much, if he's trained in all the wisdom of Egypt, as some of our industrial revolution periods, because we're just figuring out that really, even in Egypt, as we explore it, we really don't know very much. So when we talk about Moses like he doesn't know anything, more recent spading into the archaeology, the rocks cry out and say, really, he actually knew more than what we're talking about. And when you can memorize whole books of the Bible, and you have an oral tradition where you memorize many things, from everyday plants and animals and culture to the things of God in the Bible, Solomon, you find a good example of that, where he knew not just his Proverbs and everything, but he also knew things of the plants and the animals. These guys were wise. We're the ones who aren't wise. We're the ones who need a computer to remind us every once in a while as we're preaching a sermon, oh, here's our next point, okay? So, you know, we're we're a long ways away from Moses' time. And so in building Pharaoh's chariot, which you can find on PBS.org, Uh, Moses we find out knew the technology of his day that includes chariots and pyramids. Can you imagine building the pyramids this day and age with those materials that they used and the methods they used? We don't even have the the muscle power to even get anywhere near that anymore. We have to use all these petrol driven machines and the wisdom and literature of his day their language included in that which it took us years to figure out anyway. The religious beliefs of his day, he knew exactly about the religious beliefs of his day because we see him dealing with, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the false belief about death, the false belief about sun worship, the false belief about pantheism, by the way, that somehow everything is God and we're God. And he counteracts it with his language in Genesis. In fact, he shows us that there was a literal six-day creation event, and he uses specific terms to identify that with a seven-day Sabbath. And overall, nature doesn't have power. It's God's word, speaking, that has power. So I'm going to review briefly in just a couple slides how he does this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and empty. Darkness was on the face of the deep. So in essence, they have some things, right? There was a little bit of a water world. But what is the point? God made this world. Before this world was, if there's, this world sitting here, and God created the heavens and the earth, Then that means he preceded it. He's more powerful than it. So God creates our planet. Our planet did not create itself through natural processes or selection apart from him. Our planet was not begun by God and then left on its own, which is called deism, where you wind up the clock and let it go. This is not what we're talking about. We're looking at a planet where God, the God of the universe, Got personally involved in space and time as we know it and made our world. And so we have an outline of the days of creation and why they testify against this idea of everything being God. Days one to six, day one, God's the author of light, which some people say, well, you know, there had to be some kind of star out there and some nebulosity, and therefore that's what lit the earth at the beginning before he made the sun and the moon, right? we have a clue when we look at Revelation that God doesn't even need lamps and light. He himself is light. So he doesn't need the stars, and we don't need the stars. If there were no stars out there, and only God alone, he could light the whole universe. So day one is pretty clear. God is the author of light, and that's even before it even mentions the stars. Day two, the sky and the sea were made by him, and are not forces of their own devising somehow just mixing together and forming life in our world and so we find the sky and the sea were made by God and they respond to him that's why Jesus meant they asked the question who is this that the winds and the waves obey him When Jesus is walking upon the water after he walks upon as he, as the waves are going to sweep over the boat right he calms it with his voice he scolds the child and says ah, no 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 and the waves quit who has that kind of power Well, Jesus has that kind of power, and in Genesis, this creator has that kind of power. It's not like somehow there are Poseidons and some weird gods out there controlling the waves. We find it's God himself who makes the world and controls it. Day three, land appears by gathering of waters into seas, not molten lava cooling to form water. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't some weird thing there regarding that, but we we know from the text that the waters were gathered into seas or these huge lakes and then the dry land appeared. And plants came about by God saying or speaking them into existence, not somehow out of the primordial soup developing into some complex organisms. And day four, heavenly bodies, he doesn't even use the word sun and moon, were created by God to govern the night along with the stars. You know, Genesis isn't even touching on, on the stars and all of that. It's just telling you the sun and the moon were made, and the, by the way, The the moon is set in the sky to govern with the stars. That's the main point of the text. If you try to squeeze in there somehow that uh, there's millions of years in those pauses, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying God made everything in the sky. Birds and sea creatures were made after their kind. After they were made, they reproduced after their kind. Key phrase in the Bible, which means they did not evolve into other species. It's not saying they didn't adapt to the extremes that came after the flood when you had reverse polarity going on and all these different things happening and the huge extremes of climate. It's not saying that we're discounting adaptations. We're discounting one becoming another. In fact, we're still tinkering with bodies and with organisms to try to make them do that. So it proves that we haven't even succeeded in that ourselves. So how could nature by itself succeed in producing a complex series of of organisms that comes into being human beings. And so they reproduce after their kind. That's why you see the birds still mating with birds. That's why you see the dogs still mating with dogs. Now they do some other weird things, you know, when they're trying to show dominance and all that. But nonetheless, they reproduce after their kind because God designed them that way. And then day six, they have land animals. So notice in a short period of time, not in huge geological slices of billions of years but in a short period of time you have all of this taking place and now on day 6 you have land animals and in the the macroevolutionary scheme the land animals would be separated from human beings by billions of years okay there would be a there would be a progression from the animals to eventually Uh, You've got the Cambrian explosion, some other things that took place in that whole scheme. But anyway, you would have all this, this time going by. But here, you've got the land, animals, and humankind in the same day. Totally contradicts that. Totally contradicts that. And that's why it says, And God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion. And God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. He created them male and female. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. And this word dominion is the idea of a benevolent, kind king like Solomon. You trace the word dominion through the Old Testament. You find it referenced to some of the court officials who sit under Solomon's dominion. They are happy, if you look at the Queen of Sheba, happy to be under Solomon's rule. And that's the same type of thing here. Adam and Eve received dominion not to rape the world, but to actually be responsible rulers of it. He uses a plural God, which we have Elohim, then the Spirit in that same chapter. And then in chapter two, we see this Yahweh figure. And some say, well, this is it. This is the example, see? This chapter ends, next one begins. That means there's two creation accounts. That leaves room for what you're talking about with, with some ancient, extinct race of humans, and now we have this huge gap of billions of years like we're talking about, and you get the next creation event. No, actually, the the Bible doesn't put a gap there. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. You'll find in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, God blesses them, creating humankind here, Says to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed. It continues and it goes on and go down to verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day, and that's where the chapter breaks, right? that's not where it breaks in the hebrew keep reading thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished and on the seventh day god ended his work which he had done he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done then god blessed the seventh day sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which god had created and made this is the history of the heavens and the earth and it goes on from there do you know what that's called that's a genealogical formula you look at the genealogies of Abraham and Isaac and others down through the Bible. You find a summary, and then they restate it and focus on the covenant promise. You start watching that. You'll start seeing that in those genealogies. Here we find chapter 1 going over to chapter 2, ending at the seventh day. It's a brief summary, and now what's he going to focus on? Humankind. That's his focus. That's, that's ancient Hebrew way of saying, here's the overview. Now let's get some more details. Repetition an enlargement. Same type of thing going on here. So this chapter serves as a summary, and the next one is focusing on the details, the crowning act of his creation, humanity. So what about the literal seven days we have now? Well, do we find that attested to in the stars and in the months? There's really no explanation for this. You find we can have a 24-hour period of day with, with the sun. You can have months and years with the moon but when it comes down to the weekly cycle why do we have seven days you only have one explanation and that's our answer young people genesis 2 1-3 to and we read that genesis 2 1-3 to we still have evidence in our own daily lives that god made us yeah, i don't care how you rearrange the weekly cycle It's still going to have seven days. It's still going to have seven days, and you're going to have to answer the question, where did that come from? Did we just arbitrarily choose? Some might go that route. But trace it back if you've got a scientific mind, and you'll find it goes back to this. There is a reason why we have seven days, and it goes back to an origin story. And I find the Bible is the most accurate of them. Because in the Bible, unlike other ancient texts, you find warts and all are communicated to you so you can evaluate it. I mean, who would record David and Bathsheba in the other ancient king's literature? Nobody would record that. And that shows you that if you want to discredit other ancient history accounts, you can do that. But as you look at the Bible, you find very little room because it's going to tell you the good and the bad in that that whole story. So it gives validity to the Bible. Mitchell, you got this written down? So God is the reason for the weekly cycle. That's why we have it. That's why we have it to this day. And when we come along and start messing with that, then we're messing with something that points to the Creator. And then we wonder why America doesn't have a spiritual compass anymore. Because we've taken the Creator even out of the worship week. We've chosen another day, whether it's Friday for the Muslims or Sunday for the, the Christians who come down through Catholicism. We've chosen other ways of worshiping. And therefore, we've joined into a system that will eventually lead to pantheism. So Genesis 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done, not because he's tired, because he's, it's a rest of completion. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So the weekly cycle, it's clear, is because that's the way God designed it and it's called very good. Very good. Especially joyful. A happy time. Why is God overjoyed with this? Well, you've got new life. Not just in the planet, but here are his friends. Here is his family. And it says in Genesis 3, they walk with God in the cool of the day. Now some of us want to who want to who keep those types of things, those sentiments, where somehow we could have a personal relationship with God. But in order to have a personal relationship with God, you have to believe in miracles. And most scientific theories lead you down a road where you won't believe in miracles after a while. So I want to walk with God. I want to have that experience with Him on a daily basis. And so I'm going to validate this story, not because it makes me feel good, but because I'm looking at an original source a primary source, and the primary source is leading me a certain direction. I'm not going to read back into history. And so seven literal 24-hour periods are attested to, and how do I know that? It uses the word yom in the Hebrew and a number, so yom and then the number one. So day one, day two, day three. uses the phrase evening and morning, which we still have, evenings and mornings. 24-hour period, the weekly cycle that has continued even in today, it goes all the way down through the time of the manna, it goes all the way down to the time of Christ, this whole evening and morning. And the capstone is the Sabbath, which we find record of time being kept regarding the Sabbath, all the way down to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and beyond. And so if you undermine creation, you can undermine the Sabbath and the Creator. And I believe you eventually undermine the cross, because if you can't believe in a creation story, how can you believe in a recreation story? And in Genesis 1, verse 1 to verse 31, you have the conjunction and that in the Hebrew links everything from chapter 1 over to chapter 2. It's like a continuation of a story. We didn't pause the children's story to go, get the, go home and get the, the puzzle picture. It just kept going. And so Creation Week answers pantheism and evolution by saying God made it all he has all power, and God is not somehow blended into his creation. He's actually apart from his creation, speaks into existence his creation, he's separate from, and yet upholding his creation. And nobody would would argue that God somehow has not instilled within us life-giving properties. Animals have retractable claws, for instance, right? To, to use, and they've adapted to environments where they did not have the plants and animals and things like we can eat on a regular basis. And so they adapt pretty well. But notice, we were all made on the same day. There is no huge record of time in the Bible. The only reason why we have that is because Charles Darwin comes along and promotes a radically different view of creation. And by the way, he did know some theology. He knew how to undermine it too. And he writes that book, The Origin of Species, transforms the way millions were looking at the world And this new worldview really had no room for the creator. And what's the result? Romans chapter 1, this is how I answer it, part 2. The result of pantheism is this. Romans 1 prophesies there would be a movement to undermine the creator and worship at the end of time. And it would result in the inhumanity that we see happening today. Sinful human beings behaving like sinful human beings with nothing to hold them in check. No wonder nature groans And no wonder we're called to alleviate the pain that creation feels, and to to propagate a message of gospel salvation to everyone. But part of that is not to deify nature, but to point everyone to the God of nature. So nature testifies to God; it is not God. Romans chapter one says, "Professing themselves to be wise, and by the way, this is really the issue: is pride. We think we're so smart when we're not." Very few human encyclopedias exist these days compared to what they used to. So we're not getting wiser. We actually find ourselves degrading at times. And Romans says, we profess to be wise. We think we're wise. They would become fools and change the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of an image of corruptible man and of birds. So human standard, God is equal to birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. Wherefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts unto uncleanness, that their bodies should be dishonored among themselves. He progresses and describes men with men, women with women, all of this. For that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forevermore. And so we find we need to go back to worshiping the creator. And I don't have time to get into this because we need to move on. But if you have issues with the timing of the Bible, then I had to say in return, I have issues with the scientific dating. And all you have to do is start looking into professional journal articles who are restudying places like Specimen Creek and Yellowstone. They're also restudying places over in Hawaii. You can go to the Geoscience Research Institute website and pull up journal articles on this. But basically, what's happening is as we look back into lava flows and different ice core datings and all of that, we're actually discovering that there's evidence of shorter time periods. And Specimen Creek is one of them where. More than likely, the fingerprint of the eruptions that they originally dated 70 to 140,000 years and these 72 separate forests that were piled one on top of the other actually might have taken place in just a year or two. In fact, Clyde Webster goes on and talks about how he discovered there were four different kinds of chemical fingerprints at Specimen Creek in Yellowstone and these were mixed in sequence. So they were out of sequence. So you had Volcano 1, had a fingerprint at the bottom of the forest and then had Number one also had a fingerprint at the top of the forest, these signatures of lava. And he concluded that no more than 12 months had transpired in the formation of the fossil forest of Specimen Creek, not 70,000 years. So this is just one example I can give you of the radioisotope age and dating to show that we need to reconsider not only our thousands of years, but our billions of years. And part three is, Jesus answers it. He answers pantheism head on, He's the only person who is fully God. We are not God. He offers to come into our hearts and we become children of God, but we are not God. And once we accept Him, we find a mark of that is baptism, which we're going to be having happen today. And after we are baptized and we continue finding our place, like the puzzle story, we begin to serve and look for ways to usher in the ultimate recreation that takes place. And that's going to take place When our bodies are transformed in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, it's going to take place when our world is recreated by Jesus, and we're all going to be able to witness that if we're there. And so to believe in creation now means you're looking forward to creation in the future. And so if you undermine creation, you undermine all of what I've talked about today, you undermine even the the, the idea of baptism because this represents something has changed me. Someone has changed me, and I'm going to follow him all of my days. And so to believe this other theory that's creeping into various faiths is to undermine Jesus Christ, the Bible, the cross, it all. This happened in Ellen White's day where she saw the timbers, the truths of the word of God being removed by individuals at that time. And she talks about pantheism. That was the alpha teaching. It's, it's already around back then. It's coming full force now. I was shown a platform braced by solid timbers, the truths of the word of God. Someone high in responsibility in the medical work was directing this man and that man to loosen the timbers supporting this platform. Then I heard a voice saying, where are the watchmen? There's the pastors, right? Where are the pastors? that ought to be standing on the walls of Zion. Are they asleep? This foundation was built by the master worker, that's Jesus, and will stand storm and tempest. Will they permit this man to present doctrines? Doctrine doesn't matter, right? It does matter. Doctrines that deny the past experience of the people of God. The time has come to take decided action. That was written years ago. Years ago. I'm just echoing what was written years ago. We have to take a decided stand against this. Because if we do not, the next step which we'll look at next week is that there will be false teachings even about the church structure and everything else. And that will enable another system to be set up in place of your beloved Adventist church. But I think Jesus led this movement and I want to be a part of this movement and I want to stay true to Jesus and share a message here in this church and around the world. How about you? And so the church will proclaim the creation message that we're talking about. They'll believe and drink the water of life of Jesus, not of others. And the ones who respond will be baptized and will tell others, come, drink the water of life of life freely. So this morning we have some here today that would like to recommit to being part of this. I know we all can do that in some way, but I've been in contact with two individuals. And I'm going to invite them to the front now, Ruth and Sandy. And so today is a baptismal Sabbath, like we've told you. And basically why I preached this, and it went long, I know, I'm sorry, but I tried to condense and condense, and the Lord's like, uh, ah, was because this is a new start kind of a way or restart for you and I just want to ask you three simple questions as you come back and as you recommit and those three questions are up here on the screen for you to look at first of all do you accept Jesus as your savior and your lord yes he's your friend yeah number two do you wish to order your life according to the teachings of God's word Yes. now God's word will come under attack so you have to stand firm for it but you wish to order your life if you desire membership in this local Seventh-day Adventist church, we're already a member, we're going to rebaptize you, but years ago you yes. were, and we want to recommit you to this. All right. So we're going to go in the back and get ready for our baptisms, and we invite you to be singing some songs, commit your heart to the Lord and what we're talking about, and as you sing these songs, just pray for their commitments to the Lord. All right. or friends, you'd like to come closer for a picture, then this would be the time to do it. I'll pause between each one. Last time I had a lot to go, so I didn't get to pause so much. Are you good? Look at my wife. She wants a picture, too. Want to just look that way for you? Are you good? Yeah. Okay. Turn you this way because I'm right-handed. Okay. I know you're recommitting your heart to the Lord today, and I know life is a journey. We keep learning more and more, so if I can help you on that journey, I'm glad. I'm glad we can be here together making our commitment to the Lord. So wonderful. So let me take care Sandy, because of your love for the Lord and your desire to follow him all your days, I now am going to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Stanza two. Why
0: should we tarry when Jesus is pleading? Bleeding for you and for me.
1: Why should we linger and heed not his mercies? Mercies for you and for me. Come home. Come home.
0: closer for pictures this would be the time to do that it's like you got two ladies wanting to look at you over here Ruth will turn this way too <laughs> All
1: right. Right
0: it's been a little bit of a journey but I want you guys to know that Ruth and I have talked about how it's never too late to come back and you know where you're still breathing, there's still choices to be made. So if you fell somehow far from God, and you're hearing our voices here today, it's never too late to be baptized and to become part of this church. again. even if you've walked away for a while, or you feel like you have, you can always come back. And we'll welcome you with open arms. you want to say anything? because of your love for the Lord you desire to follow him all your days and be part of your family again. I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 290. 290.
1: Happy Sabbath. all heavens rejoicing today the Lord left us a commission to go and tell everyone how precious they are to him and to tell them about his soon return and that is the mission statement of this church declaring to each individual their eternal value in Jesus and preparing them for his soon return.
0: Okay, with Ruth being a member of your church, yeah. everybody raise their hand if you're in favor of that. All right, there's their hands. So welcome back. Here's your certificate, you. and there'll be a little booklet underneath it that's from the General Conference, and then I got this one, I was thinking of you, so I thought that might be helpful. And then Sandy, I got you the same book, and this is a devotional guide that I give out to everybody, and then here's a book I thought might be helpful, if you, if you like him anyway. Do you like any thoughts? I love him. All right, so great. and we'll give you the roses after they have the elders come to the front. So if you're an elder here serving this term, please come to the front. We're going to have prayer for the Holy Spirit to just be poured out in their lives, like in the book of Acts, and that God would lead them to their ministry and their way of sharing the love of Jesus with the world. So I invite you ladies to come closer this way. Give us some room to gather around you. Pastor Lewis, would you offer prayer? And whoever wants to, you can. Just feel free. Let's lay hands on them.
1: Gracious Lord in heaven, we thank you so very much, Lord, for this joyous, joyous event, Lord. It's never too late with you, Lord. We we ask, Lord, that you would bless these two ladies in a very special way in Mm -hmm. this day that they've given themselves over to you. We ask, Lord, there might be joy in heaven. We know there is. We thank you so very much, Lord, for this newness of life. Amen. We ask that your spirit be upon them to give them perseverance and strength and that they might be your disciples to other people, to bring other people to Jesus, Lord. We pray your peace upon them and all those that want to know you and want to see you. In this day we pray, mm-hmm. amen. amen. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this uh, evidence of faith. We thank you for these two returning to you and to be part of our family. Again, we thank you for your blessings, and we ask you to be with our, our, our sisters here, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do pray that their lives will bring praise and honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name. Amen.
0: So Father, we ask for the Holy Spirit to hover upon them just like he did upon the waters at creation. Still their hearts when they need it. Guide them each step of the journey. Gift them according to the way you've already prepared their hearts and continue to lead and guide. Thank you for Sandy's recommitment. Thank you for Ruth's recommitment coming back. We want to welcome them again to our family. We pray that you'll send the Holy Spirit upon them in a mighty way so that more people can be one to Jesus through them. We place them in your hands now, both now and in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have a white rose for you after you receive your hugs. This is representing a new start. Nice, beautiful rose. God bless you guys. If you want to join me at the door so people can congratulate you, you can. If you don't feel like it, you don't have to. But thank you guys for coming today. We're going to go ahead and close the surface off with just a brief benediction. Father, may your peace rest upon us. May your new creation power guide us each step of the journey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.